Hello everybody, my name is Ben, and it is my honour today to be reading Ezra chapter 3. So if you'd like to open your Bibles or follow along on the, top, on the screen, uh, we'll read that, but I'll give you 30 seconds or so to find it. And just in case there's any, uh, you know, difference between how we pronounce names between myself and Scott, I'm correct. <laughs> so listen up, Scott, because you want to make sure you get it right. Okay, when the seventh month, seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests in Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sodom and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by King Cyprus of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodavia, and the sons of Hanadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as described by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Morning, everyone. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Bracker. I'm really glad to be with you this morning. Um, I think I'm about to walk into dangerous territory, but here we go. I'm not a fan of Star Wars. And I know, I hear the booze from you. I think probably about half of you are trying to rip your shoe off and throw it to me now, but I got through 34 years of life without seeing any of the Star Wars movies. And then the pandemic hit. 
<laughs> you're sitting at home, you've got nothing else to do, right? Well, so I got my wife, Pip. She said, let's watch the Star Wars movies. We watched episode, you start at the start, so episode four, five, and six, right? And I figured after we watched four, five, and six, we'd go back and we'd watch the prequels, episode one, two, and three. But Pip said, no, don't do it. Don't bother. The movies are no good. Just go to the more recent ones, which, I don't know, they episodes seven, eight, nine? Anyway. Um, so I've actually come to understand since then that a lot of Star Wars fans actually really don't like the first three episodes. This is true? Am I right? And I've heard, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I've heard a part of the reason why people don't like the first three episodes, I see Dan shaking his head, he loves the first three apparently. They, well, there you go. <laughs> um, I've heard a lot of people don't like episodes one to three because it's a lot about the political manoeuvrings and the backstage politics and there's less of the kind of starships flying through space, fighting each other, and there's more of just people sitting around a big table having a big talk. Or at least that's what I hear. Uh, now, where are we going with this? Well... Here at church, we're going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They cover the history of the Jewish people. The Jewish people had just been taken to exile in Babylon, and Ezra and Nehemiah records how they come back to their land, Jerusalem, uh, to live. This week, we're going to cover four chapters. We just read chapter three. We're going to cover chapters three to six. And, and these chapters, they're actually full of that stuff from Star Wars episodes one to three it's full of the political power plays the backstage maneuverings but does that mean then we should tune out because we don't like the first three episodes of star wars i want to say no actually stick with this don't tune out because we're actually going through here not what george lucas makes up in his mind but we're hearing the word of god to us we're going to see a whole lot of drama a whole lot of tension but more than that we see here in the Word of God today why Jesus is worth throwing a party for. So here's what we're going to do. Firstly, I'm just going to give an overview. We're going to run through really quickly what happens in, the, in these four chapters. And then I want to highlight some significant things and what it means for us today. So let's start. Let's start with what, what actually happens in these chapters. Last week, we saw that there's a new king on the block, King Cyrus. And he says, I want three things to happen. I want the temple to be rebuilt. I want the Jews to go back to their land so they can rebuild the temple. And other people, neighboring cities, other people groups, they have to give the Jews stuff to help them do this. And last week, we saw that the Jews did go back. Tick. Um, other people did give them stuff to help. Tick. But we haven't really seen the temple being rebuilt yet. But in chapter 3, that begins in earnest. And you see in chapter 3, verse 2, the, the Jews rebuild the altar. This is the first thing they do. It's the most important thing to do because, well, when that's done, you can do, start making the sacrifices, which is what the Jews were supposed to do because um, now they've got the altar to sacrifice on. They build the altar, then they start bringing in some building supplies to get the rest of the temple started. And in verse 8, they start to begin, they, they begin to build the temple again. They start with the foundations, which apparently if you're a builder, you'll tell me that's where you're supposed to start, right? You start at the foundations. Yes, good. <laughs> um, and when the foundations are finished, they celebrate. Look at verse 10 again. They, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. 
But we also saw, as Ben was reading through, at the same time there was weeping. Celebration and weeping both at once. Because they're weeping because these older people had seen the temple before. They're weeping because they have to rebuild the temple. It's reminding them of their sin, the reason why the first temple got leveled, why they had to be exiled. It's a bittersweet moment for the people, for the Jews here. But, but by and large, things seem to be going pretty well. There's quick progress in rebuilding the temple. Like the, the altar's been rebuilt. The foundations have been laid. We're thinking, all right, this is get off to a really good start. But then the problems arise. Then the political power plays begin. Opposition arises to the Jews from the countries around them. In chapter 4, we see these other people groups, other, other countries nearby. They, they say, let us be part of this rebuilding too. We want to help. And the Jews say no. And so these other people, they don't like being told that they can't be, take part. So they interfere with the rebuilding work. In chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, we see they discourage the Jews. They intimidate them. And they bribe other officials in the area to make it hard for the Jews. And this isn't like just a short-term little project for these neighbouring countries. It continues all through the reign of King Cyrus into the reign of right down to King Darius. We're talking 17 years here of opposition. And it could be easy to think at that point, well, maybe the Jews made a tactical blunder. If only they had let these other nations come in and help them, then, then, then they'd have extra, extra hands helping out. Then they wouldn't have 17 years of people trying to stop them. But there were good reasons why the Jews didn't let them help. They perceived that something was not right here. It wasn't what it seemed. This offer to help was actually a political manoeuvring, a power play. And so if, if you're reading through chapter 4 from this point onwards, you kind of move ahead quickly in time and, and you see what these neighbouring people did later on. The opposition, we saw it began when Cyrus is the king, but it keeps going right down to when Xerxes was the king and even after that when Artaxerxes was the king. And the point of chapter 4, it's saying to us, this, this offer to help, it wasn't genuine. These neighbouring people are not friendly. They were looking for a way to, to oppose the Jews, to get in and like white ant them. So the Jews were actually right to say no to their offer as help. It wasn't genuine. So there's opposition. And this initial enthusiasm to rebuild the temple just dies away. And so chapter 4 ends with these words. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, I just want to sorry, press pause on this, this recap of these chapters and, and have a quick aside for us here. We're going to see this a little bit more in the coming weeks as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah. But this feels a bit disappointing for us at this point, doesn't it? It's a letdown in the story. We've been seeing things go so well. They've come back to do the work. They started well. But at, at this sign of opposition, well, they just stop. We read this and we're supposed to think, come on, guys, just get on with it. You know what you're there to do. Don't let this stop you. 
That's the right reaction. That's what we should be thinking. And, and, and it's a reminder to, to us today. If you're someone who's a follower of Jesus, if you're someone who is God's people, God has given us work to do in his world today. He's given us the work of seeing the gospel spread through our suburb here at Paraka, through our city, through our nation, through the world. And it wouldn't be right for us to just stop that and neglect doing that because there's some opposition to us. It's an encouragement, friends, to us for us to keep going in the work that God has given us today. Okay, that's that little sidetrack done. Chapter 4 ends with no work being done on the temple. And then something new happens. In chapter 5, God sends prophets to talk to the people, Haggai and Zechariah. And these prophets get the people back on track. So they start rebuilding the temple again and think, well, things are looking good again, right? We're, we're, we're going ahead. But then, surprise, surprise, another problem emerges. More political power plays happen. So the Jews there, they're rebuilding the temple, but then there's some overzealous officials. They come and they look and they see what's happening and they think, I'm not sure this is right. I don't think the Jews should really be doing this. They ask lots of questions and eventually they decide, well, well, we need to hear what the king says about this. We need to hear what King Darius says. And at this point, we get letters sent back and forth between these overzealous officials and King Darius and to cut a long story short, Darius has some of his people go back and look into the record books and they go and they, they, they find the decree that Cyrus wrote close to 20 years before. The decree saying that the Jews were to go back and rebuild the temple. And so Darius says, well, well we've got to let the Jews keep building the temple then. But actually, he says more than that. In chapter 6, he says, not only are the Jews allowed to keep building their temple, but... These overzealous officials, they're going to pay all the Jews' expenses as they rebuild the temple. And they've got to provide animals for the Jewish sacrifices. And all of this, it has to come out not out of the king's budget, but out of the, the budget of these overzealous officials. In the end, the problem is resolved way better than anyone could have anticipated. And so the rebuilding is allowed to continue. We get towards the end of chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 15, finally, the temple is completed. The Jews celebrate. They rededicate the temple. They throw a party. Then about a month later, they, they do it all over again. They celebrate the Passover. They have a big party. The Feast of Unleavened Bread happens. It's a great time of joy. And the temple is completed. Friends, do you know, here amongst us today... We have a minor YouTube sensation. True story. If you go home today and go to YouTube and you, t you type in cherry and walnut sourdough, you're going to be treated to a masterclass on how to make bread by Pip, my wife. Now, when I say, here's a bit of it on the screen there. When I say YouTube sensation, I might be slightly overstating it. The video does have 220 something hits though, so that's not too shabby. 
But when we're all in lockdown and we're learning different hobbies, ways to pass the time, my wife turned to sourdough making, and as someone who got to eat the product, can I say I was very happy for this fact? But as I watched her make it, it I, I realised very quickly, this is, this is not for me, this is not a hobby that I'm going to take up. Not because it's tricky, although actually it probably is, but mostly because it just takes a long time to do. If I make bread now, I want to be eating it by this afternoon at the very latest. But making sourdough is a longer-term project, right? You've got to spend a lot of time getting your starter right. That takes actually you know, more than just a few hours. And then actually when you turn to making the bread, it, it takes a long time as well. If you start making bread today, you're not having the bread until like tomorrow afternoon at the earliest. Sourdough is a long-term project. It, it, it's, it's not the kind of hobby for me. But again, very happy for Pip or anyone else here. You want to make sourdough? I'm very happy to taste it and tell you what's good. Here's the real long-term project, though. This rebuilding of the temple. Lots of ups and downs. Lots of starts and stops. And after 21 years, the temple of the Lord God stands again. And that's what happens in Ezra 3-6. to And you might be sitting here thinking, well, good for them. But so what? What good does it do for me to know about this? So now what I'm going to do is just we're going to kind of go back and see just three significant things. Things that, you know, we just kind of quickly went over four chapters. It's very easy to miss a lot. I just want to point out three significant things from these chapters. And why they're important for us to see. Firstly, did you notice God's fingerprints are over everything that happens here? Last week, we kind of saw this as well. We saw the impossible thing happened, right? The Jews, they're in exile, but they were allowed to return home. And why did that happen? It's because God made it happen. This week, we see the Jews rebuild the temple. And how does this happen? Again, God makes it happen. When the Jews have been discouraged by opposition, God sends his prophets to kickstart them again. When the question is put to King Darius, should we allow this temple to be rebuilt? Well, God, he, he changes the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them, the Jews, in the work on the house of God. See, God's fingerprints are over everything that happens time and again in this chapter. And it's a reminder to us. The God of the Bible, the God we serve, is a sovereign God. What he says he will do, he'll do it. So that means we can trust him. Take him at his word. What he promises us in his word that he will do for us, friends, he will do it. Secondly, did you notice the Jews do what is right even when they're under pressure? So in chapter 3, we see them following the law that God had given Moses. So when they build the altar, they start offering sacrifices because this is in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they do this even though they're in fear of the people around them. Again, when in chapter 4, God sends his prophets and the people listen to the prophets 
And they do this in spite of the other nations around them who are opposing them. And so on and so on and so on. All through the chapter, time and again we see the Jews are doing what is right even when there's pressure on them. They do what is right. And again, it's a reminder for us today. There are times, friends, when if you're a follower of God, there are times when you're going to be put under pressure. Perhaps under pressure to do something dodgy at work. Under pressure to get ahead by being less honest with your tax return. Under pressure to stop talking about Jesus. Under pressure to to do all sorts of things that aren't right if we serve the God of the Bible. And when we're in these moments, it can be easy to cave in and do what others would have us do or do what our own desires want us to do. This passage reminds us, don't. Beware, be careful, and don't cave in. If we are God's people, then we serve God first. And we serve God last, and we serve God everywhere in between. So take this as an encouragement, friends. See this example of these people of God and do likewise. Do what is right. Do what God would have you to do. And do that even when you're under pressure. Third thing here. Did you notice there was a lot of celebrating in these chapters, right? There's a lot of throwing parties. And back in chapter 3, they, they, they build the foundations of the temple. And what's the response? Let's have a party. At the end of chapter 6, the, the, the temple's finally rebuilt. And what do they do? Again, party, celebrate. There's lots of celebrating. And, and it's actually all based around the temple. Because to the Jews, the temple is a very, very important thing. The temple is where, if you're a Jew in the ancient world, the temple is where you went to to connect with God, where you went to meet with God and do business with him. And so when the temple is gone, if you're an Old Testament Jew, then something drastic, something huge is missing for you. When the temple is rebuilt, that's, that's huge news. That is worth celebrating. Because now you can go back to meet your God, connect with your God again. So the question is for us then, what do we do about this today, right? Do we need to go and build a temple in Jerusalem and then have a party about it? I think we're all here. We, we know that's actually not what we need to do today because we're not Jews, right? We don't live under the Old Testament law. For those of us who are, who are following Jesus, we, we, we say we are Christians and, and we live not in the Old Testament law but in the gospel promises And this reminds us then of one of those really important things when we read the Old Testament. Yes, we definitely read the Old Testament. It is still God's word to us and we need to spend time in it today. But we read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Between us and the Old Testament stands Jesus and we need to read the Old Testament in light of him. It's like like putting a pair of glasses on, okay? So if I take my glasses off now, I can still see that there's people there, but your faces are fuzzy, and to be honest, probably for most of you, I can't tell you from one from another. And if I leave my glasses off long enough, you're probably going to see me kind of 
squinting around and eventually I'll do something that just seems strange because I can't see properly with what's going on, right? And that's what it's like if we keep reading the Old Testament and leave Jesus to the side. If we kind of just look for where we fit in the story without thinking about Jesus, we end up doing strange things. But, but, but seeing the Old Testament in light, of Jesus, in light of Jesus, it's like putting my glasses on and suddenly the things become clearer now. I can see what I'm supposed to do. So what does it look like for us when we, we, when we read Ezra chapter 3 to 6 with our Jesus glasses on? We see that we don't need to go and build a temple anywhere. We actually see we already have a temple for us. Jesus is our temple. He is the place we go to connect with God. He is the place we go to meet with God. Jesus is the place. Jesus is our temple. He is the meeting place between God and humanity. Jesus is our temple. So, if you're here today and you're not sure about God, if you'd like to get to know who God is, if you want to discover God, then Jesus is the place to go. Pick up a Bible and, and, and read one of the Gospels of Jesus. See, see what his life is like. Listen to what he says. Because he is the place where you meet your God. He is God in the flesh. God come to be with us. If you want to get to know what God is like, see Jesus. If you're here today and you're someone who follows Jesus, I want to say just... See how the Jews celebrated the temple. See how they found so much joy in being able to meet with their God again. I say, are we filled with that same sense of, of joy and celebration about Jesus? Do you know that's why we sing at church? Singing is not something that people do often in our society anymore. Um, but we sing at church. Because it's a way of capturing our words and, and what we say along with our emotions together to express our joy about the one who's worth throwing a party over. In a few moments' time, we're going to do something here together. We, we, we call it the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We do it because we want to be reminded of Jesus, of his death. Like Maverick showed us before in the All Ages spot, how Jesus connects us back to God by, by dealing with that problem of sin. And of course, we don't just want to do that while we're here together. We want, we want this joy and this celebration of Jesus to overflow into every part of our life, don't we, friends? How do you do that? How do you have a life that just overflows with joy, celebrating Jesus. Well, I think it kind of looks different for all of us in a way. We're all wired a bit differently. We'll all express this a bit differently. But, but let me say two things here. Firstly, this is less about telling us what to do. It's more about a chance to, for us to stop and, and check our hearts. Where's my heart in this? D do I delight in Jesus? And the things I know about God, do I let them seep down into my heart and actually bring me joy and shape me emotionally too? And, and, and for who I am, 
How, how does that, how can I express that joy? Is it in kind of singing? Is it in prayer? Is it in writing? Is it in some kind of inner delighting in the Lord? But two then, if my heart's not there, what do I do to change? How do I get my heart arrested by this joy in Christ Jesus? I think what I want to say here is, is, is get, just get more Jesus in your life then. And I'm not saying that means, you know, read more Bible or listen to more sermons or, or play more Christian music on your stereo, or, although that may be it. But, but the key here is, is, is be disciplined to put Jesus at the forefront of your mind. Let your thoughts be taken captive by Jesus. Because, friends, when, when Jesus is bigger in our minds, we can't help but have those lives that overflow in joyful celebration. Jesus is that good that when he is the center of our attention, when our, when our eyes are focused on him, we can't help but overflow in joy and praise and, and thanksgiving to God for him. So I'm going to pray and ask God that we would be those people. Will you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we thank you for these chapters in the Bible and how they point us towards Jesus. Jesus being our temple, the place we go to meet you, the place we go to know you. We pray we would know Jesus. Please make him bigger in our minds so that our lives would overflow with joy and celebration of him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.